Hey, Disney fans, looking for the latest Disney news? And interviews with some of Disney's biggest stars? Well, have we got the podcast for you. Welcome to D23 Inside Disney. I'm Tony from Good Morning America. I'm Jeffrey from D23. And I'm Sherry from Oh My Disney. And together we are taking you Inside Disney. Hello. 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 Bonjour. Bonjour, bonjour, bonjour. Mademoiselle. It's so fun to be here because, you know, we don't often get to do bonus episodes, but I think it was time to say be our guest to a few very special guests today for a very special anniversary of a very special movie. And it is the tale as old as time, quite literally, at least for me, everyone. (laughs) One of my favorites. Favorite tales as old as time. Uh, super excited to get into this one. Yes, Tony, Jeffrey, as you both know, I am just thrilled to bits about our guests today who literally made my childhood complete in just a few days, Beauty and the Beast, or as I used to call it in my three-year-old voice, Bean Beast, celebrates its 30th anniversary. It was the first animated film to ever be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, and it was the highest grossing animated feature in motion picture history up to that time. But more importantly, its timeless tale, as old as time, caught the imagination of people of every generation across the globe and remains a beloved classic to this day. To celebrate that film, we want to celebrate some of the people who brought it to life. So please welcome to the show Beauty and the Beast producer Don Hahn, incredibly talented actor and director and voice of Beast Robbie Benson, and the voice of Belle and a wonderful artist to boot, Disney legend Paige O'Hara. So everybody, 30 years. I mean, you all must have been 10 when the film was made. (laughs) Obviously. (laughs) Yeah, we were were under 10 actually. I was in preschool and uh... (laughs) how does it feel all these years later to look back and and to think like, wow, 30 years ago? For me, the feeling that comes to mind is humbling. Mm. You know, that it's what movie 30 years ago still lasts and still comes to mind when you uh say, hey, name a, name a movie from back then that still is with you. And people are so, you know, generous with their affection to this movie. It's amazing. It's so true. How did you all come to the project? So Don, how were you brought on? Paige, Robbie, I feel like you probably both have very interesting audition stories. <laughs> they certainly do. And how much time do you have? <laughs> like when, when you're a producer, you're kind of the first one on and the last one off. So I was still making a, finishing up Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And I got a phone call from Jeffrey Katzenberg who said, hey, we want to do Beauty and the Beast. What do you think? And I knew that Walt Disney tried Beauty and the Beast back in his day, and he just passed over and he said, this is impossible because the middle of the movie is all about having dinner and, you know, there's no plot. So I swallowed deeply and said, okay, well, let's try it and dove into it. And we did have lengthy auditions. I mean, the the first people we were able to attract to it, obviously, were Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, which was in so many ways kind of made this movie and and certainly set the foundation for it. Linda Borchin, our writer and our, our great story crew and our directors, Kirk and Gary, but when it came to Belle and the Beast, we knew that the Beast and Belle would be like the foundation of Beauty and the Beast and the Beauty and the Beast story that people would remember for years to come, or at least we hoped. Oh, man. Paige, you're first. We listened to easily 100 or 150 different women in Los Angeles and mostly in New York. Then one day Paige came in and why don't you tell that story? Oh my gosh, that was crazy. I mean, I just remember coming in and seeing all of the gang there and I did the singing, I did the acting, but it was interesting. I'd look over and they're all of their eyes closed. So it really didn't matter. 
what I looked like. They were just focusing on the sound and what I was bringing to it as an actress. I remember just being kind of overwhelmed knowing that my agent told me 500 women were auditioning for this part. Yeah. But it was an odd thing because I'm normally not a very confident auditioner. It's not one of my greatest talents is auditioning. But in this particular incident, I just felt like Belle was me. I identified with her as soon as I read the script. And I just had to just maintain that confidence and not get insecure, you know, just put it out there, put out what I felt of her character and not be afraid to take chances. So that was kind of the, the, the main thing. I found out many years later, though, out of the blue, Howard had said, by the way, I, I love your showboat recording and your work at Carnegie Hall with the Princess Theater musicals of the turn of the century. So he, he sort of knew who I was beforehand and I didn't even know that till after we'd pretty much all recorded the movie. That was kind of cool. We shared a love of Jerome Kern along with millions <laughs> of others. Well, and the other thing that Howard said is he, we were always looking for actors who could sing. And for both of you, it was that, you know, it's like, let's find great actors who can, oh, by the way, sing, and you both do. And it's the headline of what we were shopping for at the time. And Robbie, I think we looked equally as hard for the beast. And we even had kind of cast different people at different times. And it was never quite right because everybody could get the kind of big fee five fo fum kind of side of the beast and nobody could get the heart or the sensitivity of it. And one day you walked in, we were lucky. You know, for me, I was recording for about a month before Robbie was cast. Yeah. And I'll never forget the first day he came in. My character came to a whole nother level because of what Robbie gave to me as an actor. It's not just the sensitivity and, and everything that he had, but he had multiple colors as the beast and the sense of humor as the beast. He had this boyish humor that just made us endear ourselves to him. The, the world loves the beast because of what Robbie brought to it. If that had been just a, you know, a nasty old beast, nobody would care if they fall in love and end up together. But with Robbie, he broke your heart and made you laugh and cry in the same same scene, you know? Rob, Robbie, what's your rebuttal to all this? <laughs> <laughs> Let's let him talk for a change. <laughs> it's very, very kind. And I have to second something that you said, Don, about humbling. It's funny to me, I find and have always found almost every adventure that I have in life to be extremely humbling. And I guess maybe that's because when I first was married and we first had a child, I had my first open heart surgery, first of four. And so like everything that I tried to do in life, I feel remarkably fortunate. As far as the beast is concerned, <laughs> when I first came in to audition, two things happened. I, I saw a whole lineup of people that I knew. I had just come back from making a feature film in South Carolina, where I also was teaching at the university. So I had just gotten back and got this audition. And, and so I was reading the script that was handed to me. And what I heard coming out of the room was the exact opposite of what I was reading, what I thought I was reading. You know, like you win or you lose when you go up to audition and mostly you lose. So the thing that I've always done is I trust my instincts. And I started reading this script and it read like a Broadway show. And that's where I began when I was uh, 12 years old, I was on Broadway. And it just read like something that was very real. Forget cartoon. I hate that word, especially when it comes to Beauty and the Beast. It's animated, but 
When people say cartoon, it's almost like when you go, I've been on big boats and, you know, a captain will say it's a ship. It's not a boat. Well, this isn't a cartoon. It's an animated feature that should, to me, as I was reading it, I just thought, wow, this is a Broadway show. And I started reading The Beast as if it was, well, it became very personal, to be quite honest. There were contradictions and feelings that, that were in the script that I actually believe, that I have. It was bizarre. You know, I at the time couldn't control my temper. (laughs) I knew that and I behaved with a lot of frustration, but I knew that. And then there was the technical side of it. And that is, is that I heard all of these men bellowing and uh, this huge sound coming out of the room. And when I walked into the room and I had been making music and engineering my own stuff forever, Uh, Carla and I had already sold the song I think to the breakfast club uh, with a kid's dance. And that was my demo. I mean, I, I wrote that and recorded the demo and, and already had sold a song to Diana Ross from a demo I made. And so I walk in the room and I'm thinking, this is going to be a big Disney audition. Hmm. There were two men in the room and on the table was a little Walkman. <laughs> and the Walkman has a condenser mic. And, and basically that means, you know, massive compression. And if you start to do something really huge into a mic and you don't understand mic technique and the kind of mic you're dealing with, it just shuts down. I mean, that big voice will suddenly just become this smashed signal. And so I thought this is actually perfect for the way that I see, because to me, try to become this character. And and that's what I really, sounds so actory. That's what I believed in. You you become this character. And by doing that, it has to do with my technique and and you finesse these lines. And when it gets big, you start it small and it just starts to roar. And and so I knew that, that I had something to offer. Now that usually doesn't mean anything when you audition. <laughs> it did this time. You know, but I had like, five or six callbacks. And even after I got the film, I will say it was a bit lonely being the beast during the working part, because when I would record, you know, I would come in and I'm not good at small talk. So I I would just, you know, say hello to everybody. And the only time that I ever felt safe was when I would hear Don and others laugh behind the glass. And I just felt like, oh God, that I feel so good to perform and make people laugh. And when I got to work with you, Paige, you know, it was just so lovely. But Mr. Katzenberg, who I think is a genius, I really do. He did not want me to meet anyone, especially Glenn Keane. So I even got instructions from my agent who I should never speak to and and how I should behave. And it was really lonely and weird. And to be honest, up until when I sang in New York, which was like the day after the Super Bowl, because I remember flying in and the Giants won on a field goal. <laughs> Long story short, it wasn't until then that I suddenly felt like I'm a part of this family. I kept waiting to get fired. That's the absolute truth. I really kept waiting to get fired. Well, a point you brought up earlier 
is a perfect segue for this. A lot of times actors in animation, they kind of work alone in a booth and it's very solitary. You might be lonely, but like you said, Robbie and Paige, you both worked together once. What was that like? Actually, back in those days, no one ever got to record together. You're always by yourself in a booth. And I was kind of frustrated with that. And when Robbie was cast a month after I was, I was like, oh my God, this great actor, please, can we record together? And it's, it's, it's not just simple, like, okay, we can just set it up. I mean, technically it's very difficult. It takes more time, more hours, more money, but thank goodness that uh, Don and Disney said yes. And we recorded together and, and consequently I got to record the, the scenes with Gaston, Richard White as well. And then for me as an actress and a Broadway person, being able to work off of someone, well, Robbie just made my performance so much better than it would have been had we not recorded together. I firmly believe that. Same here, same here. Wow. Well, speaking of recording performances, we famously know that Angela Lansbury recorded Beauty and the Beast in one take, but Robbie, we heard that you recorded your part of something there in one take as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of weird because when I was young, when I was on Broadway, my voice changed. And so I look like I should be a tenor and I am a bass baritone and there's just no doubt about it. So I was very nervous about singing something there. And so uh, to be quite honest, I was incredibly focused. I didn't want to hold anyone back. It was just like a, an absolute Broadway recording where you go in, you know, before your show opens and you sing what you sing on Broadway and then hopefully everyone likes it. And it's not like a record, you know, where you sing or punch in, or at least it wasn't for me and for what I was seeing. I just did what I thought was right. And they went, fine, let's move on. And I was like, oh man, that's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, we were so blessed because we sang with the symphony orchestra right there with everybody in the same room. I mean, it was, it was incredibly exciting. And of course, you know, Angela Lansbury coming in, you know, having been up all night from getting stuck traveling and Don said you can go home we'll do it the next day and then of course she gets up there I can do this and the great Angela Lansbury one take and not a dry eye in the house you know we're all crying so it's pretty amazing but Robbie Robbie's an old pro like Angela <laughs> <laughs> wow I can't even record my intro in one take he's got the pipes <laughs> <laughs> he does thanks uh, so over the years we know you've all spoken a lot about the film, so this may be a toughie, but for each of you, is there one thing, just one thing about the making of the movie that we probably don't know that is also appropriate for a Disney podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there's a long list of stuff that's inappropriate. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I mean, I, you may know this, but Howard was really, um, you know, such a central part of the movie. And of course he was really sick towards the end of the movie. So part of it was trying to keep the work moving ahead and keep him, uh, he wanted to work. I mean, that's all he wanted. He, he, it's like, listen, I, it is what it is. And I have HIV and, and it's, he was very, you know, understanding about it as were we, but he just said, it's about the work. So let's work. And I think that was, I can't say it was sad, although later it was, but it was inspiring, I think was the word to see somebody that could have given up, somebody that could have, you know, just said, listen, guys, I'm going to have to bail on this. And he didn't. It was the opposite. He actually stepped up and wrote songs like something there. 
towards the very end of his life. And that's humbling. That, that's, it's, I've said it before, but it's the kind of thing that is kind of heroic. So, you know, we've talked about that, I suppose, before, but it's something that is always going to be associated with this movie in an inspiring way, I think. And I think for me, it was Angela Lansbury did not want to sing Beauty and the Beast for the press tour, a little bit of press that we're doing. She, so she, I think she suggested that I, I sing it. So I was really excited, of course. And I went over to Alan Menken's house and he's taught me the song and we sang through it. And he said, oh, we have to call Howard. And I want you to sing it for him over the phone. I did that and Howard got real emotional and we talked about him and he gave me a couple pointers, but he said, don't change, really don't change the interpretation at all. You might want to hold this note longer or this, whatever. Being able to be coached by him, talking to him, actually hearing his voice. That was the last time I actually got to hear him speak with me and coach me. It was a, a very special moment I'll never forget. Robbie, any memories that we may not know about or little known? Sure. I have one that no one knows about. That's <laughs> kind of funny. I, at the time, Carla DeVito and I, we've been married now 39 years. And we had... Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. And our daughter was born in 84. So she was about six years old at the time. And we were good parents. I want to just say that. <laughs> we were good parents. But, you know, we were there whenever we could be. And long story short, so Lyric had a birthday party to go to. And this was when we were about, for me, it was only a few months into recording. And, you know, Beauty and the Beast was a very secretive production, especially visuals getting out. And so we went to a television showrunner's party for their daughter with our daughter and all these kids. And it was a Beauty and the Beast. And I thought, you know, that's kind of ironic. Beauty and the Beast birthday party. And so right before the cake, they said, all the kids sit down, you're going to watch Beauty and the Beast. And I thought, I wonder what they're going to see. And they turn on the pencil sketch and things that should never have left the lot were being shown to the parents and to the children. I'm like standing there going, okay, so should I be the jerk that like holds <laughs> on these people? I mean, this is not right. And, and I became very territorial, I have to tell you, because people's work was unfinished and it was really unfinished. It was unfinished vocally, it was unfinished visually. And so I did, a nasty thing, something that I read, but I'll, I would do it again tomorrow. I called Jeffrey Kessifer and I said, for you. And I said, man, these people shouldn't have this. I know that because I'm a director, I'm a writer, and this is unfinished work and this is wrong. And there was this long silence and he said, who are they? Where are they? <laughs> what are they saying? I mean, it was hysterical. And then I thought, oh my God. Because these are these were kind of friends of mine. They were acquaintances of mine. I had to work with them and stuff. But they were friends of Carla's from a long time ago. Oh no! And I went, oh my god, what have I done? <laughs> so they got their tape back or confiscated. I don't know if they, you know, how many they had. I don't know who had. I don't know what was going on. But that's a story that I don't think anyone has ever heard. Never heard it in 30 years. 
Uh, in 30 years, I have never heard that story. And I have to make a few calls when we hang up here. I just thought <laughs> it's crazy. Oh my gosh. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that story was under embargo for three decades. <laughs> yeah, but now it's out in the open and uh, I think it's good. No, I mean, like we're, I, I am grateful that we're all that protective over the work because we are, it takes like four years and millions of dollars and you want to surprise the audience like it's, you know, the Christmas morning or something. So um, thank you, Robbie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, going back to the year 1991, the movie comes out, it is massive. What was the most surreal thing that happened to you or that you saw happen with regard to the movie? So many stories, but we, 30 years ago this month, probably this weekend, we showed the movie unfinished at the New York Film Festival and nothing had ever been shown at the New York Film Festival unfinished nor animated. I mean, it was like to show an animated film was like, what, what are you guys doing? And so we did, we, we had the unfinished version and then the audience was packed and it was packed with people from New York whom I love, but there was a air of sophistication. There was uh, an air of celebrities of the era, people like, you know, uh, Don Johnson. And, you know, it was just like people had come to see this event and the movie played and uh, Kirk and Gary, the directors and I were backstage, you know, covered in flop sweat and uh, we, uh, <laughs> Towards the end of the movie, we came up and Roy Disney was sitting in a like an opera box on the side of the theater. And so we thought, well, we'll watch it with Roy. And then at the end of the movie, people started applauding and then they stood up and applaud. And then a spotlight came over on Roy Disney and we were standing there with him and, and we felt like the Beatles or, or like Imelda Marcos <laughs> or something. And it was the oddest, because you get into animation, not because you want to be in front of the camera, because you are the geek in the back of the class is drawing Goofy on his notebook. And, and so it was really memorable, not only because the audience embraced the movie and had seen animation for the first time in pencil sketch and showed how impossible it is to draw this stuff, you know, and heard Robbie and Paige's performances for the first time. And then to have somebody actually applaud like it was a Broadway show. And after every song they applauded mm. like it was a Broadway show. It was the most amazing thing. And you know, Don, they applauded for 10 minutes. Remember they brought us up on stage? Yeah. They didn't stop applauding. And for, you know, Robbie, we're New Yorkers. We're Broadway people. We know how tough those critics are and those audiences are. That yeah. was just, to me, that was the day I knew that this was going to be a classic. I knew it. For the, yeah. for the audience in New York to react that way, it was mind boggling. And I thought, Don, I was afraid you were going to have a heart attack that night. You yeah. Were I, luckily, I was wearing Depends. <laughs> but it, 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 you never expect this. I mean, people say, oh, you must have known it's a classic. Not a chance. I mean, you don't. No. You just hope to get it done and you just hope that people will enjoy it and that it won't be an embarrassment. And then to have people uh, appreciate it that much is, I go back to humbling again. It's no surprise to me that these two names have already been brought up a few times during our interview, Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, of course. You can't talk about Beauty and the Beast without naming those two. But just to hear from you three, do you have a favorite memory from working with the two of them together? Or I guess for Paige and Robbie, you know, the process of entrusting your talent to individuals like Alan and Howard, what was that experience like for you? For me, I really did not have a relationship with either of these gentlemen. My relationship was with Don, our directors, obviously with Paige, but I will tell you, for me, this is true in almost anything that I've ever done in my life, where there's an incredible feeling of anxiety. It could be sports. It could be like before you go out and play basketball or baseball or whatever. But the second you walk onto the field or the second you have the ball in your hands, 
you feel at home. You feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. So as far as entrusting, these gentlemen made me feel very safe when I started to work. Before that, it's just all the machinery and the silliness inside your own head and the insecurities. But the second you begin working with Paige, and I can't tell you uh, how wonderful a feeling it was to work on the movie. I mean, to literally to hear these gentlemen laughing through, I could hear it through the glass. And then I might even say, would it be all right if I tried something? And for them to say, please go ahead. That does not happen that often. So they were like big pillows that embraced us. They just hugged us, embraced us and let us feel good about what we did. So true. Um, since I had a lot more to sing in the movie, I worked with Alan and Howard a lot more than Robbie did, but they were so encouraging from the very beginning. And I, there's a part of me that just wanted to be the, you know, the Broadway belter, which I, you know, I was known for when I did the show about recording, which the one that Howard liked was a different style of singing that I worked on really hard to be able to do show about. It was what they call more of a mixed middle soprano range. He said, I love what you did with your voice bringing in and out of the chest in the mix. And this is all technical terms. He said, you've got all that down. Now I just want Paige to come through. You know, you're not playing Evita, you're not playing Drew, you're not, you know, all these parts that I played, Sound of Music, I want Paige to come through, and then that's going to be exactly what it should be, and Alice and I'm totally in agreement with Howard on that. We don't agree on everything, but we agree on that, so go for it. So they actually encouraged me to just let more of myself come through in my singing, and uh, actually, the my singing in Beauty and the Beast is different than anything I've ever done. You can play any of my other recordings, it's totally different. That's the influence of those two gentlemen, it definitely is. The Beauty and the Beast ballad came in and it was so lovely. I mean, whenever these songs would come in, they'd come in on a cassette tape, which for you young listeners was a plastic box that had some tape inside of it. <laughs> I would listen to it on my car stereo again and again. And the Beauty and the Beast ballad was so great. And we all loved it. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, once again, who I too think is brilliant, said, we need more of this. Can we extend it? And Howard like thought for a moment and he said, no, no, we can't. And Jeffrey said, why, why? He said, well, I've used all the rhyming words with beast that are usable because all that's left is yeast, priest, deceased. So <laughs> it was like a practical reason why he couldn't do it. It's like beauty and the priest, you know. Both different movies. Yeah. Howard, you know, Howard was one of the funniest people you'd ever meet. And, and so articulate. at times difficult, but, you know, we all are. And, and you're struggling to do good work. But yeah, he was a special lad. For those listening, if you've not seen it on Disney+, Plus, Don's excellent documentary, Howard, is available for streaming. Yeah. So uh, please watch that. Now, the film comes out, first ever animated feature to be nominated for Best Picture. What were the Oscars like for each of you? Oh, man, I got really good seats because usually if you're in the animation business, you either sit in the back or you sit in your living room. And I, I sat next to Jeffrey Katzenberg in like the seventh row behind Sylvester Stallone. And I felt like the country cousin. It's like, who does not belong here? And I got a call the night before from Michael Eisner, who was the head of the company that time. And he said, you know, Don, if you win, because there's a chance you guys might win, when you get up on stage, could you please say at the end of your speech, just say, and now I'm going to Disneyland. <laughs> Michael, I can't say that. It's the Academy Awards. <clears throat> but always the uh, promoter, Michael, thought that was a good idea. So uh, that's my little untold story for the day. I was singing the bell song of Beauty and the Beast and 
Uh, it was the first song of the evening. I chose not to do the red carpet. My husband was like, are you crazy? I said, no, I won't have a chance to vocalize and prepare. I have to prepare myself before I go on stage. And anyway, I was Angela Lansbury and I were in the wings. And I swear she was just as nervous as I was. And she was about to introduce me and she came back on stage and all of a sudden she's grand and she has totally confidence. You know? <laughs> like, okay, I can be like her. You know, <laughs> I was kvetching to her right before I went on. I said, I'm so nervous. She said, if I sang like you, I wouldn't be nervous. It's okay. <laughs> and uh, I came out and I started to sing Little Town and I thought I was going to throw up. I mean, literally <laughs> I saw Barbara Streisand. I mean, all these people right there, Barbara Streisand, <laughs> I idolized my whole life. And I was like, Paige, you got this. You're a Broadway girl. Just It's the Broadway show, girl. Just be Belle. And so I, I relaxed and it was okay. But it was an amazing night. And sharing a, a dressing room with Celine Dion was really kind of cool too. But we have another hour. What? <laughs> Did not know that. Well, yeah, and you have to remember Celine Dion. Nobody knew who Celine Dion was. In fact, we it's like we're doing Beauty and the Beast. And Chris Montana, our music guy, said there's this Canadian singer. She has a really nice voice. And we compare her with a big star like Bebo Bryson. And so they sang the kind of FM radio version of Beauty and the Beast. And of course, Celine Dion became Celine Dion. But Beauty and the Beast was one of her first kind of breakthroughs. Mm. Oh. She was a lot younger than I was. And I was wearing a costume that was designed for me for this. And I didn't like the dress because it looked like little Bo Peep. It was <laughs> like checkered and ruffly and frilly. And, and I had these pantaloons and stuff. And Salim's just shaking her head. <laughs> tell them no. You could tell them no. And I was like, no, I can't. I was like, oh my God. I wish I have to learn to be like you, Celine. That is really cool that you, you just say no, I'm not wearing it. But she, she was pretty neat even then, back then. Talk about preparing before you sing. She's, if not worse than I was, preparing and vocalizing before she went on stage. That was kind of cool. I really enjoyed that. So, Except for the panel and dress. Evie Allen actually said, why don't you wear the dress that you wore to rehearsal? I said, you know what? I would hurt that guy's feelings so much if I said no to his costume. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But it was amazing to be there. It was. And I got to meet Kevin Costner after. That's another story, too. That was really cool. I had a real big fan moment that night. <laughs> and Robbie has an even more important story that that you have to tell for the night of the Oscars. Yeah, well, the royal we in this family were about to give birth to our son. So I, anything to hold was completely secondary unless it was a little human. So that's where our minds were. Yeah. Aw, that's amazing. Wow. I love those stories. I feel like we're going to need a part two of this podcast just to talk about <laughs> Yeah, and I think this could go on for weeks and happily so, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> that's the cool thing like I never get a chance to see these people and when we get together it's like we never parted you just pick up where you left off but if you're a producer you're the luckiest man in the world to get you know Robbie and Paige to do these voices because it's hard and they bring so much to the party that you never thought of Walt Disney had this great notion of plussing where you took something that somebody else did and you plussed it they are absolutely at the top of the list of people that do that and that's you know we were the beneficiaries of that Mm. Wow. Amazing. Well, Paige, I have a question for you. Okay. You do some beautiful Disney artwork now, and a lot of it features Belle. Is there anything you feel like you've learned about her as a character from having painted her? Uh, well, it's, she is actually very difficult to draw and paint. I've studied James Baxter and Mark Hinn 
I can't tell you how many hours of, of their drawings and their early drawings of her. I consider my painting a success if you can see what Belle's thinking through her eyes when I paint her. If you don't see anything going on in her eyes, I throw it in the garbage can. It's It's really been a wonderful journey. Disney Fine Art has been great. And now I'm painting the other princesses, which I'm loving. And I'm loving painting the Beast. I'm doing a ballroom painting right now with the Beast. And uh, it's really fun. It's, it's great. I've always been an artist. You know, I sold my watercolors on the streets of New York, you know, to pay my rent. That's kind of what I did. And I would copy Turner and Sargent. And then sometimes I would do Snow White and some of the characters in watercolor. And But this is a whole nother adventure. I'm really, I'm really loving it. Hmm. Well, if you're ever tempted to um, throw any drafts away, I'll send you my mailing address. And, uh, sure, I'll find room for them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I want to squeeze this, qu- this question in really quick. Beauty and the Beast can be seen, gosh, in so many places. There's additional films, theme park attractions, restaurants, stage shows. Do the three of you have maybe one thing that sticks out that's your favorite? Oh, boy. No pressure. I'll just throw one thing out. I was lucky enough to work at Disney World reading the the Christmas... Candlelight. Candlelight, yes. The candlelight processional, right. I love to do that because it gave me as a dad a chance for my children to really have a great time. When my little boy was in my arms, we were walking around during the day before I went to work, and he saw the Beauty and the Beast stage show. And there's a picture that my wife took of him in my arms when the beast comes out and roars. And of course, it's they use the stuff from our performances. So he's listening to me. And unfortunately, he has heard that before. And, <laughs> but he's in my arms and he's just so amazed. And I, I will treasure that photograph forever. That was a moment that is just... It's just too priceless for me. Yeah. For me, I was going down to Florida and I, this was on a, a, a the Disney plane, which, you know, when you're making a big fat movie, sometimes they invite you to go on the Disney plane and Paige, I think you were with us. I and was. my wife and I had been trying to have a baby at the time. And Paige said, I think your wife's pregnant. And I said, no, <laughs> no, that's, that's not the case at all. And nine months later, we had Emily. So, um, <laughs> Uh-huh. There's something very spooky about Paige that we appreciated. <laughs> Emily was born when the movie came out and we did something similar to Robbie. You know, you have this newborn precious little jewel and all of a sudden Belle walks up and you realize like, you know, all these parts of my life are colliding. You give so much to your work and so much to your family. And it's just so funny and emotional when those things collide and come together. We're lucky boys. Yeah. Michael and I never had children, but we raised my great niece, Jade, for the first three to four years of her life because my nephew and his girlfriend were 16. So we had the teenager 16 and we had the baby. And Jade was like the light of my life. And the movie had come out and, you know, I'd have it playing, whatever. And I would sing to her a lot. We would sing together. And I remember one time I was singing an aria and she's sitting on my lap and she went, Sonic Boom. I was like, oh my God, where did that come from? Voice. A toddler saying Sonic Boom. But she didn't get it that I was Belle until one day she was crawling around and I had I put it on and she put touched the television and she looked and she said, Auntie Paige? I said, Auntie Paige Bell. Ah, she went crazy like that. And we we really enjoyed that. And she said, Can you do Cinderella too? <laughs> it's like, yeah, I'll do Cinderella, but enjoy Belle for a few minutes. 
But being able to share that with Jade, and of course, as she got older, she appreciated it even more. And taking her for the first time to Disney World with the guide was quite an experience. We cherished that time we had with her. She's now living in Florida and married and hard to believe. I'll go up. They grew up yeah. fast. Yes. What's also really amazing is I went to a high school production in La Crescenta, California of Beauty and the Beast. And it's impossible to sit there and not be flooded with memories of you guys and, and like where these things came from. And, you know, Gaston would have a line and I just thought, oh, that's Kirk's line. Oh, that's Linda's line. And to see these kids in high school knocking themselves out, and this happens, by the way, hundreds of times every night around the world as people are putting on this show, is so cool because you feel like you're watching your life play out through these young kids. And I like to think that there's a generation of people coming up who have such an appreciation for Broadway musicals and, and kids that are performing now, maybe because of movies like Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King and those Broadway musicals that let people know that it was okay to sing in movies, you know, and which hadn't been happening before. Right. Yeah. Wow. So amazing. Well, you think about it. If Howard and Alan hadn't begged Disney to do Little Mermaid, and actually, I think Howard also produced as well, co-produced. Yeah. yeah, yeah. If they hadn't convinced them to do that, the last 30 plus years, we may have not had any of these films. No one may have taken the chance. We owe a lot to them. And what's funny now is Alan's working on The Little Mermaid, you know, right now with Lin-Manuel Miranda. And Beauty and the Beast just opened in Liverpool in England with new songs by Tim Rice. So, you know, it's just like this thing that lives on. And that's so hard to wrap your head around. Gosh, yeah, I can imagine. Well, unfortunately, we're at our very last question, which I'm very sad about, but it's a good question. Mm. We normally end our interviews by asking for a favorite Disney memory. But for all of you, we're going to end with what is your favorite Beauty and the Beast memory? That's impossible. I know. I know. <laughs> it's a hard question. It is. For me, it might be early on because as a producer, you try to get the best people you can and then do exactly what they tell you to do. And I had hired, thankfully, Glenn Keane to do the Beast. And as Robbie said, we tried to keep Robbie personally away from Glenn because it was all about the voice and the performance. And Glenn kept talking about the kind of size of the Beast. And so I, I went and did what would now be a very politically incorrect thing. I went to the taxidermy store in Burbank and I bought a bison head for Glenn, which was like this huge, <laughs> you know, and, and now I look back and thinking, Don, you were insane. And I brought it into Glenn's room and he hung that on his wall all the time he was animating the beast. So he has Robbie in one ear and he has a full American bison over his left shoulder for, you know, a whole year trying to make that work. And the funniest thing was when I took the expense form into our accountant and just said, hi, well, I got, you know, I had coffee and I had lunch and I bought a bison head. And I, <laughs> so um, it was a leap of faith to try to inspire our animators and boy, did Glenn get inspired. I mean, his work on the transformation of the beast is so beautiful. And he would go to the Pasadena Museum of Art and look at Rodin sculptures and study fine arts and master's paintings and just get immersed in the draftsmanship of it all. So to watch an artist like that work or to watch uh, Paige and Robbie work as a producer is so gratifying. I think for me, it was when I was allowed finally to go and watch what James Baxter had. But James got sick. He animated a whole bunch of the beginning of the film and then Mark Ann took over when James got sick. So I got to work with both of them and, and watch Bell evolve with them. But Robbie, you, were, you didn't have that privilege. They let me do that. But uh, to me, it actually inspired me, you know, to see how they were making her happen and all my little weird quirky things that we do when we record because they were videotaping us, they were putting like the hair, the, all the little things in there that you would never think, you know, would 
they didn't miss a thing. I mean, when we talk about the character of Belle, Belle is not just me, it's Linda Wolverton, it's James, it's Mark Henn, it's the whole gang. You know, it's gonna live on long after we do. It's pretty darn cool, you know? I have many, many very sentimental, touching memories from Beauty and the Beast. But I do have a kind of a funny little story. While we were recording, my best friend and I, we always prank each other. And I would always, he's an actor, and uh, I would always get on the phone with him and pretend to be, you know, Michael Eisner or anyone. I mean, <laughs> I would just be absurd and, and I would have fun and we would have fun. And that's just what we did to each other. And we would torture each other all the time. And one morning at about seven o'clock in the morning, I get this phone call and I answer the phone. I say, hello. And I hear, uh, uh, please hold for uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, please. And I go, Jeffrey. Oh, right. It's seven in the morning. I know he's in Hawaii. That means four in the morning. Okay. And so I started this incredibly rude, awful, like just playing with my friend. Like he's, you know, <laughs> and I hear this man go, Robbie, it's, it's me. It's me, it's Jeffrey. And I went, that's really good. It's, my friend's name is Cliffy. Uh, really good Cliffy, you know, and then I started telling him who I was and I started, and this went on for like 10 minutes until finally the phone hang up. And then the phone rings again and I'm turning to Carla, you know, and I'm saying, he can't believe this, but I just really got Cliffy and the phone rings and uh, please call for Jeffrey Kassenberg. And, <laughs> and I'm like on the phone, I go, oh, Cliffy, you're not going to stop. Okay, well, and then Jeffrey just says, Robbie, it's me. And I recognized the tone of voice and I recognized it. And, oh my God. Um, <laughs> so that's a kind of really funny memory. Oh my gosh. That is so funny. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Robbie, Paige, Dawn, it is wonderful to see all of you. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing these stories. We are so lucky to have all of you here and, and so grateful for the incredible work that you did and continue to do. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for getting us together, yeah. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, guys, I cannot believe we got to talk to all three of them. Three-year-old me is so thrilled. 30-year-old <laughs> me is even more excited. That was so much fun. Yeah, and honestly, I think we were just so privy to a piece of history just now. It was really just, ugh. And stories they say they have never told before. I so know. I, that's, I mean, the bootleg copy story. I'm yes. <laughs> so precious, so precious. Well, thanks to everyone for listening to this very special bonus episode of D23 Inside Disney. Don't forget to like and share this episode wherever you listen or subscribe. And if you want to chat with us, just hashtag D23 Inside Disney. And for all the latest Disney info, check out D23.com. And tune in later this week. That's right, this week for a new episode of the show featuring the latest Disney news and a fantastic guest on an all new episode of D23 Inside, Inside Disney. Disney.